Don't you just love it when um, God is clearly trying to say something to us across the evening? Hopefully, as you'll see as I go through my message, um, you'll hear that God is trying to speak to us tonight about his father heart. And I believe even through what Adrian's just shared, like about how much he loves us and what that means for us is huge. And so many of the words that we heard in our worship time were literally like taken out of my sermon. So um, God's on our case tonight. So receive this with faith that he's trying to speak to us. I think that's pretty exciting. The plan for this evening is uh, we're going to read from a book in the New Testament, uh, one of the four accounts of Jesus' life. So there are these four books written by four guys telling the story of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And uh, this evening, we're going to be looking at the book of John, which... uh, Oh, I've got a fan. That's great. Um, I started reading the book of John just before Christmas, actually, myself, and uh, had a commentary to read alongside it. And it's just been so helpful to me and so encouraging, and I've used it a lot in my own worship time. Um, but it's also really like begun to challenge me and, and speak into my life in different ways. And so hopefully, um, I'll be able to share some of that this evening with you. And as I said, I believe God wants to speak to us through um, some of these words. So let's delve straight in. We're in John chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 9. And I'll read through to verse 13. It'll be on the screens, but if you have got a Bible, you can follow along in there. So John 1, verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I'm going to focus, I guess, primarily on verses um, 11 and 12 tonight, trying to answer something of the question of what does it mean for us to receive Jesus? That's the language that's used in verse 11. And then what does that mean for us if we do? So that's kind of where we're going to try and go. The verses that we just read um, are actually in the middle of a prologue um, for the rest of this book, which is essentially just a setting up of what is to come, an introduction, perhaps, to what he's going to do for the rest of his book. Um, And he does this by, certainly at the beginning, painting this wonderful vista of the eternal Jesus. And uh, he talks about how Jesus has always been with God. He was there right at the beginning. He was there in creation. He is life himself, and from him we have light. And his light has come to the world when he himself came to earth in his fullest form, in flesh, even as Rosie alluded to earlier. And it's a stunning passage. And primarily that's what I've been using to fuel my own worship times for like the last month. And so I encourage you to go back and read like the first five or six verses of John. It will do you so much good. And it's then from that kind of lofty height place that we then come down to perhaps a kind of a more earthly view, like what actually happens when this eternal Jesus comes to our planet, comes to Earth. And to put it in a little bit of context, where has he been born into? Well, he's being born into the people of Israel, uh, Jewish parents, and the people of Israel are God's people. Okay? They've been set apart for him for a very, very, very long time, for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
ever since God promised to Abraham that he would make a covenant with his offspring, they've been known and identified as the people of God. That's been how the rest of the world has sort of known them. That's how they had kind of identified themselves, this chosen people of his, to whom he had revealed himself to an extent and to whom he would one day fully reveal himself in flesh, in the form of Jesus. So it makes sense, right? He was going to reveal himself to his people, to his sort of family. And as well as just that that makes sense, there are also all the prophecies, of which there are many. God time and time and time again spoke to the people of Israel, saying, this is roughly what's going to happen. I am going to come to you. We, we even know that famous verse at Christmas in Isaiah that says, to us a son is born, to us a son is given. So even that, seems to me pretty clear in what he's saying, like there will be a baby boy that will be born to you, the people of God. Okay, that's what's going to happen. They had plenty of warning. They've been told again and again and again that that was going to happen. So it would seem to me that it would be appropriate then for when Jesus comes that there would be celebration and welcome and rejoicing and delight that, that God has finally revealed himself to his people. Hallelujah. In fact, the, the verses that we just read, when it says he came to his own, that can actually be, be translated to his own home. So in many ways, God was coming home. Jesus was coming home to his family, to his people, to where he belonged. How exciting. And yet, we read in that verse, that it said his own people did not receive him. The commentary that I've been reading alongside uh, this as I've been reading it over the last month or so is by a guy called Bruce Milne. And, uh, and he says this of this moment that we're reading about. There can be no more poignant expression of human folly and perversity than Israel's rejection of Christ. In spite of all the centuries of waiting for their promised Messiah, when at last he appeared, they not only dismissed his claim, but instigated his destruction. It is a tragedy which brought tears to the eyes of Jesus. And it is. It is tragic. He's not received by his own people. But hang on a second. It, it seems to me like as you read some of Jesus' life, it seems like there were at least some, in some instances, quite a lot of people that received him to an extent, that were excited about him, that followed him, that wanted to hear him speak, so what, like what's going on here? Why does it say his own people did not receive him? Well, I think what John's getting at here is, is that the identity of Jesus, his claim, as Bruce Milne puts it, that's what they don't seem to receive well at all. They didn't receive him as pointing to a misunderstanding and subsequently their rejection of who he said that he was. His claim to be the son of God, the sent one, the Messiah. You know, in, in Matthew 16, another one of these accounts of his life, Jesus asks the disciples, you know, who do people say I am? And they give him, you know, a whole range of different responses of what people are saying about him. Clearly, people are confused about his claim of identity. And later on in John 19, in this book, he explains that the people crucified him because he claimed to be the son of God. Again, to do with who he said he was. They so disagreed, so rejected that they decided to kill him. 
So that's what they're rejecting. They did not receive and, and, and accept his claim that he was the Messiah, the sent one of God. And at this point, my natural reaction, and even as I was preparing, this is where my mind went, was to point the finger at Israel. The finger of accusation. Say, how on, how on earth could you do this? You had plenty of warning. You knew he was coming. He's, he's your Messiah. He, this is it. It's happening right in front of your eyes and you rejected him? I would never have done that. I would never, ever, ever do that. So, oh, wouldn't you? And then you kind of get this oh, self-reflection moment of like, man, maybe God's trying to say more in this and just make Israel look bad. And actually... It is one of those moments which happens a lot in the Bible where it's not just about the text on the page. It's, it's much deeper than that. There's much more that is going on. And really what this is pointing to and alluding to is not just the state of Israel, but it's the state of the human heart, mine included. A rejection of Jesus and everything that he claims he is. And there was a point in my life where I, I had rejected him for 17 years. <laughs> Who on earth am I to now point the finger at Israel? It's nonsense. Okay, well, let, let me ask you rhetorically. You don't have to all give your answer to this. Um, do you receive Jesus? Do you receive Jesus? I'm sure lots of you in this room would say, yes, and I have. I'm literally here because I have received Jesus into my life. I have accepted who he is, his claim. I believe he is the son of God, who he says he is, and I'm going to follow him for all my days. Excellent. Me too. I'm with you on that one. But let me rephrase the question slightly. Which version of Jesus have you received? Or even now, are you receiving on a day-to-day -day basis? Now by that, I don't mean that there are like iterations of Jesus, like Jesus 2.0, the hybrid model, the GT version, not that. I'm trying to ask, what, are you accepting the Jesus of the Bible? Or are you more tethering onto your own pre-existing life, a version that suits you? That's going to work for you? Rather than giving your life for Jesus completely and wholly, are you fitting him around it? You know, where you follow him when it's exciting, which is very easy to do. It really is. When, it, when it's exciting and it's cool and there's, like, there's a crowd, you're like, yeah, of course I'm going to receive this Jesus. But then there are other moments, maybe just when it's just you and you're reading a text and you think, that's, that's a bit challenging actually. Or, oh, that would mean that I couldn't do this thing that I want to do because of what he says. So you just sidestep it. Or worse, turn away completely and reject him. I wonder how often that's happened in your life. I can certainly see it time and time again in mine. Which version have you received? There's actually a, a brilliant story that I'll, I'll walk you through later on in John, in John chapter 6, that illustrates this very well and almost to the point where it's like comical. So um, I'll take you through it. I'm not going to read the whole passage because it is quite long, but I'll paint the picture and then we'll see what's going on. So 
John chapter 6, this is just after Jesus has fed the 5,000. Big day, very exciting for everybody. That evening, he's walked on water. Again, very cool. We heard about it in our worship time. Then this is the following day, okay? And the crowd that are left behind from what happened before, they go across the sea uh, to find Jesus because he's gone. And, um, and this is what happens. These are the events that followed. So I'm going to sort of pick up from, I guess, verse sort of 25 or so, if you do have it in your Bibles. So the crowd go over to see Jesus. And then they ask him a very acceptable question, in my opinion. When did you come here? Not particularly offensive, I don't think. I think quite normal. When did you get here? Right? It's just common conversation, perhaps. Jesus does away with the niceties in an instant and goes straight to their heart and is like, basically, I know that you're only here because you either want more bread from the day before, you just, want some mater- you just want some stuff from me. I know your heart. So the crowd are like, oh, boy, okay, right. And then this exchange goes on between them. They ask, okay, well, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus simply tells them that it's to believe in him who God sent. So they're like, okay, well, what, what do we need to do to be doing these works of God that he, Jesus has just referred to? And Jesus is basically like, just follow the one who God has sent. Follow me. Believe in me. Then they ask Jesus, okay, well, that's all fine, but what can you do to prove that you are the one that has been sent from God. And they they go back to their history to make a point that that Moses gave their fathers bread from heaven in the wilderness. So, like, what can you do to show us that you are, you know, the sent one? Like, Moses was the chosen one of God at that time. To which Jesus replies, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. And then the crowd, seemingly in a very positive step, say, give us this bread always. And you think, well done. That's like so far a bit shaky maybe at the beginning, but now you're like, Jesus said you can have this bread that gives you eternal life. And they're like, I want that always. Good. Well done. However, as you can probably see where I'm going, this is like the tipping point in this exchange where stuff begins to go a little downhill. Because in verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then in verse 41, it says, So the Jews grumbled about him. Oh, no. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Basically, they're like, Jesus says, I'm it. I'm the one sent from heaven. And they're like, no, because we know your mum and dad. (laughs) Like, we know where you came from. You can't start making these claims. They're outrageous. They're like, now we've got you. Again, though, that's not really what he's saying. And then I'm going to read on from verse 47. Now I'm going to read a couple of chunks, sort of take us to the end, and then we're going to try and put ourselves in the story. After a little bit more of an exchange, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. He's not one to beat around the bush, is he? Um, This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, and here's when it gets a little bit like weird, probably, if you're standing in the crowd. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. I'm just going to skip ahead to verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, Oh, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Then just skip ahead again to 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Okay. A lot of talk about eating flesh. So let's go back a second and put yourself in the story. Right, you're in the crowd. I'm in the crowd. <clears throat> You've gone over to Jesus. Be like, oh, when did you get here? And immediately, like, it's quite abrupt. You're like, whoa, like, just... Okay, fine. But then you begin this conversation, a bit of dialogue, a bit of back and forth with Jesus. And it's all going pretty well. There's a couple of like moments where you're like, oh, I'm not sure. He seems a bit annoyed at what we're asking. But it goes and he entertains your questions and you think, oh, great, great, great. Okay. And then like this bread that he's talking about that gives eternal life. You're like, I want this bread always, always. And you're listening to what he's saying. You know, I am the bread of life. Great. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Yes. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Yes, yes, yes. And he's like, eat my flesh. (laughs) What? (laughs) Just sounded like you said, eat my flesh. (laughs) And then instead of explaining himself, he just sort of says it again. (laughs) And this time he throws in, and drink my blood at the same time. (laughs) And you're like, Jesus. Right, everything you said up to that point, I'm all for it. And like, I appreciate everything that you've done. The whole feeding the 5,000 thing, very cool. Like that a lot. And the walking on water was even more impressive. It was great. Great to hear what you said. This eternal life, um, yes, I'm game, I'm in. Tell me how you lost me when you started talking about eating your flesh. And again, it just says the same thing with slightly different wording or swaps them around. And that's the point where you're like, mm, nah. You're like, thanks. It's been, it's been real. Steve, I've got some actual bread at my place. Do you want to just go back and... Should we, just have, should we do one? Yeah, great. Jesus, it's been cool. See you later, right? That's kind of where I put myself in that story, to be honest. And I suspect, in all reality, you would be the same. Because it's a bit bizarre. But what is sad and tragic about this is that they don't even try. Often when Jesus is teaching, 
he does so in such a way to, to sort of test our hearts, to really see whether we're being genuine and earnest about our desire for that which he is preaching about. You know, sifting the wheat from the chaff. And this crowd, they seemingly are doing really well for a little while, but they don't stand the test at all. As soon as it gets slightly challenging, as soon as it gets slightly just out of the ordinary for them, something they're not used to hearing, they don't even try and comprehend what's going on. They just bail. They just think, oh, actually, you know what? I'll just scarper. I thought you were going to give me something more bread, perhaps, but not this. This is just weird. So I'm gone. They don't just sidestep. They just turn away and leave. They reject him to receive Jesus. To accept him is to take him at his words. To be like the 12 disciples that stayed behind. You know, he said, Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? Gives them the option to bail. He said, who else should we go to? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They've seen behind and allowed their hearts to really take in what Jesus is trying to teach. Just open themselves up to it and say, this might seem confusing perhaps, but actually I know what you're saying is that your words have eternal life, that you are the one that gives the life. So my question is, are you going to be like the crowd? When, when it gets a little bit tricky, you're just going to do a runner? Or are you going to be like the 12 that profess his name, that believe in his name? Because if we choose to be like the 12, if that is our choice, then as we read in our verse at the beginning, to all who received him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you make that choice, this, this becomes your right to be a child of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a child of God? Well, it, it means to be born again. You know, there's that phrase like born again Christian. It kind of sounds a bit bizarre, but it, that's basically what's been described here. Everything that I was before has been undone and unraveled, and I get to start over. I get born of God, not of blood, nor of flesh, nor of man, but of him, of the spirit, as it refers to in chapter 3. Born of him. One of the other commentators, Tasker, says, On all who accepted him for what he is and gave him their allegiance was bestowed the right to become what by nature they can not be. God's children, and to receive their father's care and protection. What well, by nature they cannot be. Nothing in my nature could achieve this. Nothing I could do could achieve this, or even get me close to having the right to be a child of God. Nothing I could do. And again, if we look at the context, the world in which John is writing this, there were all kinds of ways to sort of salvation, or like enlightenment. Racial pedigree, perhaps. The family line that you were from, 
your knowledge, your, your intellect, your philosophical understanding, all kinds of different cults and idols and gods to be worshipped that you could become part of that sort of initiated group. But every single one had all kinds of parameters and limitations and requirements of you before you could get there. All these loops that you had to jump through. In that world, then, enter stays left, Jesus and his teaching, and all of a sudden, all who believe, despite family background, despite age, despite job, despite gender, despite how much you know, despite what you think, as long as you believe, have the right to enter the family of God. The right, that is, that's a strong word for that to be yours, to claim that. Also in a world where, where rank counted for absolutely everything. Everyone knew where they stood. And for the majority of people who were slaves, they knew where they stood, and they also knew they had no chance of ever getting higher up on that ladder. Never going to climb any higher than where they were. So this news, absolutely huge. Just believe. Receive Jesus. Believe in his name. And you have the right to be a child of God, to enter into that family. It was revolutionary. And it still is. Just because the context has changed, the power of the gospel hasn't. Still the same. From the moment you first accepted Jesus, when you received him for yourself, if that is your story, I can say there was a moment where I received him into my life, you were accepted and you were given the right to be a child of God. Not because of your background, in spite of, not because of religion and ticking all the boxes, not because of your race or your achievements, but because of the work of the Spirit in you. Your state changes from being dead to sin, alive in Christ. Born again. Everything before has been undone. And the moment you accepted Jesus, God the Father accepted you and became your father. Not just the, but your father. You now have the family relationship with him. And your status changes from being a slave to sin to becoming a son or a daughter. Immediately. I've been given the greatest of family names. You are crowned and seated with Christ. That's what it means to be a child of God. And I, I know what life is like. There's all kinds of fears, insecurities, doubts, inadequacies that we have to fight and battle against. And, and it's not just like out there in the world. It's in the church as well, even in this room. We're all human. Things that we'll grapple with and struggle with every single day. When we come together like this, all these insecurities playing in different people's minds. But what you are here, what you do here, what people think of you, what I think of you, what anyone ever speaks over you or says of you does not define you. The Father defines you. Your Father is what defines you now. That's become your right for your definition to come from Him and no one else. The Lord of the Rings reminded me a little of this. Anyone a fan of Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you're not, then you're wrong. So, um, <laughs> B and I were watching Lord of the Rings recently, went through the trilogy again. They do this thing where everyone in Middle Earth like, is introduced by like, layers of family name. Yeah? Like, anytime someone is met for the first time, it's not just, this is Aragorn, which is already a strong name, let's be honest. <laughs> it's, this is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the heir of Elendil. And everyone's like, whoa, it's a big deal. 
And it happens time and time and time again. I mean, I kind of like it. If I had a cooler, stronger name, I'd probably go for it. But hi, I'm Chris, son of John. Doesn't really cut it. (laughs) Um, If you've got a stronger name, maybe next time you introduce yourself to someone, go for it. Um, But what that does immediately when that person is introduced, even the way that they think, knowing their family heritage, gives them such confidence, such strength in and of themselves. And people sort of sit up and take notice when the, the line is read out. And if we choose to be like the 12, if we choose to accept and receive Jesus wholly into our lives, then then we can have that same confidence for ourselves and introduce ourselves in the same way. I mean, maybe not literally, but you could try it. I am Chris, son of God, born of the Spirit, heir of the kingdom of God. Like that is now how I should walk and how I should talk and how I should think. If anyone actually tries that, please come and tell me how it goes. I would love to know. That becomes our identifying factor. And it's our right to have that. It it could be seen as arrogance in other settings, but it's not. That's just now what we are. Just speaking the truth. Our family line, having received Jesus and believed in his name, it is our God-given right to become the children of God. And therefore, we carry his name. And, And as a result... I'm entitled to everything that comes from being a son of God. I'm entitled to everything that Jesus is entitled to, like inheriting eternity, that being my destiny now. All the riches of Christ become mine. People often talk about sort of my generation as being like an entitled generation. And they sort of look down on us in that way. I'm like, you're damn right I'm entitled. I'm entitled to eternity with Jesus forever and ever and ever. What are you entitled to? <laughs> that, is, that is actually how we should think and be and live and talk. Now, we must be careful with that sense of entitlement. And I'll come into land with this. Because entitlement can be misplaced. A bit like Israel. They, they expected and felt like they were entitled to this like, military leader that was going to come and overthrow the Romans. That, that was kind of what they were thinking and expecting to happen. And when that didn't happen, well, they didn't receive it. And similarly for us now, we, we can feel entitled to all kinds of things. And when it doesn't happen, react badly. And you just see it all. I, I don't think it's a generational thing. I think it's just society these days. Just everything being so instant and easy. Like the age of the internet, everything is just easy to find. So we just sort of feel like everything should be easy to find. Or instant gratification, right? That I'm entitled to to have things come good for me. I read a post once about Instagram and how it's hilarious how much people go back to look at their own pictures to see how many people have liked it. Not going to ask you to put your hands up, but I know you all do it. Because it's just like the way that we're wired. And so we feel entitled to all of these things really quickly and really easily. But if we allow that to be misplaced, then we're in trouble. Because Jesus didn't promise an easy, fixed life. He didn't promise an instant gratification life. If you read the Bible, if you truly accept Jesus, he promised suffering. He said that people would hate us because of his name. And famously, you know, he encourages us to take up our cross to follow him. Now, that's not an easy life. So if we think we're entitled to something easy and quick fix, and, oh, as a Christian, so it'll be a dilly-dally from here on in, then we're going to be 
very disappointed and probably turn away. But in amongst all of that is our right to be loved, to be called son and daughter forever, to know joy and peace inexpressible. Sometimes it is so far beyond human understanding, we don't even know how to talk about it. It's put brilliantly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We're not entitled to an easy life following Jesus. We're entitled to something far, far greater. Rosie, do you and the band want to come up? So what does it mean to receive Jesus? It means to take him at his word fully, not just pick and choose. This Jesus, not your own version, accept him, receive him, everything that he says and teaches. Believe in his name completely. Trust in his name. And then if we do that, what does that mean for you? It means you become a child. That is your right to be that, to have your state and your status change forever, to carry the name, to have confidence in your status. If you accept Jesus, you're accepted. That's the way this dynamic works, and it's wonderful. And we have the Spirit's help now as well to be able to make these choices, because we do have to choose. We have to choose to receive and accept Jesus completely, and not just sidestep, not just turn away when things don't seem to fit with what we want, We have to choose to believe in the power of his name, to save, and therefore make us into children of God, that that is our God-given right. We have to choose to live as children, trusting in our Father, and walk boldly with confidence in the family name. Think, I'm Chris, I'm son of God, born of the Spirit, and heir of the kingdom. Live and breathe that every day. But we must choose Jesus together. We have to help each other to walk this out, to believe it, to encourage each other, to live it, so that we can all feel like rightful children of God. Amen. We're going to sing, we're going to worship, and then we'll see what God wants to do.